A reading from the existence and attributes of God by Stephen Charnock on spiritual worship. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4 verse 24. Having thus established the first proposition, God is a spirit. It will not be amiss to handle the inference our Savior makes from that proposition, which is a second observation propounded, that the worship due from us to God ought to be spiritual and spiritually performed. Spirit and truth are understood variously. We are to worship God, not by legal ceremonies, the evangelical administration being called spirit, in opposition to the legal ordinances, is carnal, and truth in opposition to them is typical. As a whole Judaical service is called flesh, so the whole evangelical service is called spirit, or spirit may be opposed to the worship at Jerusalem, as it was carnal. Truth to the worship on the Mount Gerizim, because it was false. They had not the true object of worship, nor the true medium of worship as those that Jerusalem had. Their worship should cease because it was false, and the Jewish worship should cease because it was carnal. There is no need of a candle when the sun spreads its beams in the air, no need of those ceremonies when the sun of righteousness appeared. They only serve for candles to instruct and direct men till the time of his coming. The shadows are chased away by displaying the substance, so that they can be of no more use in the worship of God since the end for which they were instituted is expired, and that discovered to us in the gospel, which the Jews sought for in vain among the baggage and stuff of their ceremonies. Number two, with the spiritual and sincere frame, in spirit. In other words, with the spirit, with the inward operations of all the faculties of our souls and the cream and flower of them. And the reason is because there ought to be a worship suitable to the nature of God. And as the worship was to be spiritual, so the exercise of that worship ought to be in a spiritual manner. It shall be a worship in truth, because the true God shall be adored, without those vain imaginations and fantastic resemblances of him, which were common among the blind Gentiles, and contrary to the glorious nature of God, and unworthy ingredients in religious services. It shall be a worship in spirit, Without those carnal rites the degenerate Jews rested on, such a posture of soul which is the life and ornament of every service God looks for to your hands. There must be some proportion between the object adored and the manner in which we adore it. It must not be a mere corporal worship, because God is not a body, but it must rise from the center of our soul, because God is a spirit. If he were a body... A bodily worship might suit him. Images might be fit to represent him. But being a spirit, our bodily services enter us, not into communion with him. Being a spirit, we must banish from our minds all carnal imaginations of him, and separate from our wills all cold and dissembled affections to him. We must not only have a loud voice, but an elevated soul, not only a bended knee, but a broken heart. Not only a supplicating tone, but a groaning spirit. Not only a ready ear for the word, but a receiving heart. And this shall be of greater value with him than the most costly outward services offered at Gerizim or Jerusalem. Our Savior certainly meant not by worshiping in spirit, 
only the matter of the evangelical service, as opposed to the legal administration, without the manner in which it was to be performed. It is true, God always sought a worship in spirit. He expected the heart of the worshippers should join with his instituted rites of adoration in every exercise of them. But he expects such a carriage more under the gospel administration because of the clear discoveries of his nature made in it, and the greater assistances conveyed by it. I shall therefore, one, lay down some general propositions. Number two, show what this spiritual worship is. Number three, why we must offer to God a spiritual service. And four, apply this. First, some general propositions. The right exercise of worship is founded upon and rises from the spirituality of God. The first ground of the worship we render to God is the infinite excellency of his nature, which is not only one attribute, but results from all. For God as God is the object of worship, and the notion of God consists not in thinking him wise, good, just, but all those infinitely beyond any conception. And so it follows that God is an object infinitely to be loved and honored. His goodness is sometimes spoken of in Scripture as a motive of our homage. Psalm 130 verse 4, There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Fear in the scripture dialect, signifies a whole worship of God, Acts 10, verse 35. But in every nation, he that fears him is accepted of him. If God should act towards men according to the rigors of his justice due to them for the least of their crimes, there could be no exercise of any affection but that of despair, which could not engender a worship of God, which ought to be joined with love, not with hatred. The beneficence and patience of God and his readiness to pardon men is a reason of the honor they return to him. And this is so evident a motive that generally the idolatrous world ranked those creatures in the number of their gods, which they perceived useful and beneficial to mankind, as the sun and the moon, the Egyptians and the ox, and so on. And the more beneficial anything appeared to mankind, the higher station men gave it in the rank of their deities, and bestowed a more peculiar and solemn worship upon it. Men worshiped God to procure and continue his favor, which would not have been acted by them had they not conceived it a pleasing thing to him to be merciful and gracious. Sometimes his justice is proposed to us as a motive of worship. Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29 serve God with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire, which includes his holiness in which he hates sin, as well as his wrath in which he punishes it. Who but a mad and totally brooded person, or one that was resolved to make war against heaven, could behold the effects of God's anger in the world? Consider him in his justice as a consuming fire, and despise him and rather be drawn out by that consideration, to blasphemy and despair, than to seek all ways to appease him? Now, though the infinite power of God, his unspeakable wisdom, his incomprehensible goodness, the holiness of his nature, the vigilance of his providence, the bounty of his hand, signify to man that he should love and honor him, and are the motives of worship, 
Yet the spirituality of his nature is a rule of worship and directs us to render our duty to him with all the powers of our soul. As his goodness beams out upon us, worship is doing justice to him. And as he is the most excellent nature, veneration is due to him in the highest manner with the choicest affections. So that indeed the spirituality of God comes chiefly into consideration and matter of worship. All his perfections are grounded upon this. He could not be infinite, immutable, omniscient, if he were a corporal being. We cannot give him a worship unless we judge him worthy, excellent, and deserving a worship at our hands. And we cannot judge him worthy of a worship unless we have some apprehensions and admirations of his infinite virtues. And we cannot apprehend and admire those perfections, but as we see them as cause his shining in their effects. When we see, therefore, the frame of the world to be the work of his own power, the order of the world to be the fruit of his wisdom, and the usefulness of the world to be the product of his goodness, we find the motives and reasons of worship in weighing that this power, wisdom, goodness, infinitely transcend into corporal nature we find a rule of worship that it ought to be offered by us in a manner suitable to such a nature as is infinitely above any bodily being. His being a spirit declares what he is. His other perfections declare what kind of spirit he is. All God's perfections suppose him a spirit. All center in this. His wisdom does not suppose him merciful, or his mercy suppose him an omniscient. There may be distinct notions of those, but all suppose them to be of a spiritual nature. How cold and frozen will our devotions be if we consider not as omniscience in which he discerns our hearts? How carnal will our services be if we consider him not as a pure spirit? In our offers to and transactions with men, we don't deal with them as mere animals, but as rational creatures and we debase their natures if we treat them otherwise. And if we have not raised apprehensions of God's spiritual nature in our treating with him, but allow him only such frames as we think fit enough for men, we debase his spirituality to the littleness of our own being. We must, therefore, possess our souls with this. We shall also render him no better than a fleshly service. We do not much concern ourselves in those things of which we are either utterly ignorant or have but slight apprehensions of. That is the first proposition. The right exercise of worship is grounded upon the spirituality of God. Proposition number two. The spiritual worship of God is manifest by the light of nature to be due to him. In reference to this, consider... The outward means or matter of that worship which would be acceptable to God was not known by the light of nature. The law for a worship, and for a spiritual worship by the faculties of our souls, was natural and part of the law of creation, though the determination of the particular acts in which God would have this homage testified was of positive institution and depended not upon the law of creation. Though Adam, in a sense, knew God was to be worshipped, Yet by nature he did not know by what outward acts he was to pay this respect, or at what time he was more solemnly to be exercised in it than at another. 
This depended upon the directions God, as the sovereign governor and lawgiver, would prescribe. You therefore find the positive institutions of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and a determination of the time of worship, Genesis 2, verses 3 and 17. Had there been any such notion in Adam naturally, as strong as that other, that a worship was due to God, there would have been found some relics of these modes universally consented to by mankind as well as the other. But though all nations have by an universal consent concurred in the acknowledgement of the being of God, and his right to adoration and the obligation of the creature to it, and that there ought to be some public rule and polity in matters of religion, for no nation has been in the world without a worship, and without external acts and certain ceremonies to signify that worship, yet their modes and rites have been as various as their climates, unless in that common notion of sacrifices, not descending to them by nature but tradition from Adam, and the various ways of worship have been more provoking and pleasing. Every nation suited the kind of worship to their particular ends and polities they designed to roll by. How God was to be worshipped is more difficult to be discerned by nature with his eyes out than with his eyes clear. The pillars upon which a worship of God stands cannot be discerned without revelation. No more than blind Samson could tell where the pillars of the Philistines' theater stood without one to conduct him. What Adam could not see with his sound eyes, we cannot with our dim eyes. He must be told from heaven what worship was fit for the God of heaven. It is not by nature that we can have such a full prospect of God as may content and quiet us. This is a noble effect of divine revelation. He only knows himself and can only make himself known to us. It could not be supposed that an infinite God should have no perfections but what were visible in the works of his hands, and that these perfections should not be infinitely greater than as they were sensible in their present effects. This has been to apprehend God a limited being, meaner than he is. Now it is impossible to honor God as we ought, unless we know him as he is, and we could not know him as he is without divine revelation from himself. For none but God can acquaint us with his own nature, and therefore the nations void of this conduct heaped up modes of worship from their own imaginations, unworthy of the majesty of God, and below the nature of man. A rational man would scarce have owned such for signs of honor, as the scripture mentions in the services of Baal and Dagon, much less an infinitely wise and glorious God. And when God has signified his mind to his own people, how unwilling were they to rest satisfied with God's determination, but would be warping to their own inventions and make gods and ways of worship to themselves, as in the manner of the golden calf, as was lately spoken of. Though the outward manner of worship acceptable to God could not be known without revelation, and those revelations might be various, Yet the inward manner of worship with our spirits was manifest by nature, and not only manifest by nature to Adam in innocence, but after his fall, and the scales he had brought upon his understanding by that fall. When God gave him his positive institutions before the fall, or whatsoever additions God should have made, had he persisted in that state, 
or when he appointed him after his fall to testify his acknowledgement of him by sacrifices, there needed no command to him to make those acknowledgments by those outward ways prescribed to him, with the intention and prime affection of his spirit. This nature would instruct him in without revelation, for he could not possibly have any semblance of reason to think that the offering of beasts, or the presenting the first fruits of the increase of the ground, as an acknowledgment of God's sovereignty over him and his bounty to him was sufficient, without devoting to him that part in which the image of his creator consisted. He could not but discern by a reflection upon his own being that he was made for God as well as by God. For it is a natural principle of which the apostle speaks in Romans 11 verse 36, For of him and through him and to him are all things. Did the whole in which he did consist, was due to God, and that his body, the dreggy and dusty part of his nature, was not fit to be brought alone before God without that nobler principle which he had, by creation linked with it. Nothing in the whole law of nature, as it is informed of religion, was clearer next to the being of a God than this manner of worshipping God with the mind and spirit and as the Gentiles never sunk so low into the mud of idolatry as to think the images they worship were really their gods, but the representations or habitations of their gods, so they never deserted this principle in the notion of it. The god was to be honored with the best they were, and the best they had, as they never denied the being of a god in the notion, though they did in the practice, so they never rejected this principle in notion, though they did, and now most men do, in the inward observation of it. It was a maxima among them that God was men's animus, minds and spirit, and therefore was to be honored with a mind and spirit. That religion did not consist in the ceremonies of the body, but the work of the soul, whence the speech of one of them sacrificed to the gods not so much clothed with purple garments, is a pure heart, and of another. God does not regard the multitude of the sacrifices, but the disposition of the sacrificer. It is not fit we should deny God the cream and the flour, and give him the rotten part and the stalks. And with what reverence and intention of mind they thought their worship was to be performed as evident by the priest crying out often, Mind this, let your spirits be intent upon it. This could not but result, one, from the knowledge of ourselves. It is a natural principle. God has made us and not we ourselves. Man knows himself to be a rational creature. As a creature he was to serve his creator, and as a rational creature with the best part of that rational nature he derived from him. By the same act of reason that he knows himself to be a creature, he knows himself to have a creator that this Creator is more excellent than himself, and that an honor is due from him to the Creator for framing of him. And therefore this honor was to be offered to him by the most excellent part which was framed by him. Man cannot consider himself as a thinking, understanding being, but he must know that he must give God the honor of his thoughts and worship him with those faculties in which he thinks, wills, and acts. He must know his faculties were given him to act, and to act for the glory of that God who gave him his soul, and the faculties of it. And he could not in reason think, 
they must be only active in his own service, in the service of the creature, and idle and unprofitable in the service of his creator. With the same powers of our soul in which we contemplate God, we must also worship God. We cannot think of him but with our minds, nor love him but with our wills. And we cannot worship him without acts of thinking and loving, and therefore cannot worship him without the exercise of our inward faculties. How is it possible then for any man that knows of his own nature to think that extended hands, bended knees, and lifted up eyes were sufficient acts of worship without a quickened and active spirit? Number two, from the knowledge of God. As there was a knowledge of God by nature, so the same nature dictated to man that God was to be glorified as God. The apostle implies the inference and the charge he brings against them for neglecting it. We should speak of God as he is, said one, and the same reason would inform them that they were to act towards God as he is. The excellency of the object required a worship according to the dignity of its nature, which could not be answered but by the most serious inward affection as well as outward decency, and a lack of this cannot but be judged to be unbecoming the majesty of the creator of the world and the excellency of religion. No nation, no person did ever assert that the vilest part of man was enough for the most excellent being, as God is, that a bodily service could be a sufficient acknowledgment for the greatness of God, or a sufficient return for the bounty of God. Man could not but know that he was to act in religion conformably to the object of religion and to the excellency of his own soul. The notion of a God was sufficient to fill the mind of man with admiration and reverence and the first conclusion from it would be to honor God, and that he have all the affection placed on him that so infinite and spiritual a being deserved. The progress then would be that this excellent being was to be honored with emotions of the understanding and will, with the purest and most spiritual powers in the nature of man, because he was a spiritual being, and had nothing of manner mingled with him. Such a brutish imagination, to suppose that blood and fumes, beasts and incense could please a deity without a spiritual frame, cannot be supposed to befall any but those that had lost a reason in the rubbish of sense. Mere rational nature could never conclude that so excellent a spirit would be put off with a mere animal service, and attendance a manner and body without spirit where they themselves of an inferior nature would be loath to sit down contented with an outward service from those that belong to them, so that this instruction of our Savior that God is to be worshipped in spirit and truth is conformable to the sentiments of nature and drawn from the most undeniable principles of it. The excellency of God's nature and the excellent constitution of human faculties concur naturally to support this persuasion. This is as natural to be known by men as the necessity of justice and temperance for the support of human societies and bodies. It is to be feared that if there be not among us such brutish apprehensions, there are such brutish dealings with God and our services against the light of nature. When we place all our worship of God in outward attendances and drooping countenances, with unbelieving frames and formal devotions, when prayer is muttered over in private, slightly, as a parent learns lessons by rote, 
not understanding what it speaks, or to what end it speaks it, not glorifying God in thought and spirit with understanding and will. Proposition 3. Spiritual worship, therefore, was always required by God, and always offered to him by one or other. Man had a perpetual obligation upon him to such a worship from the nature of God, and what is founded upon the nature of God is invariable. This and that particular mode of worship may wax old as a garment, and as a vesture may be folded up and changed as the expression is of the heavens. But God endures forever. His spirituality does not fail. Therefore, a worship of him in spirit must run through all ways and rites of worship. God must cease to be spirit before any service, but that which is spiritual can be accepted by him. The light of nature is the light of God. The light of nature being unchangeable, what was dictated by that was always and will always be required by God. The worship of God being perpetually due from the creature, the worshiping him as God is as perpetually his right. Though the outward expressions of his honor were different one way in paradise, for a worship was then due, since a solemn time for that worship was appointed, another, under the law, another, under the gospel, the angels also worship God in heaven and fall down before a throne. Yet though they differ in rights, they agree in this necessary ingredient. All rights, though of a different shape, must be offered to him not as carcasses, but animated with the affections of the soul. Abel's sacrifice had not been so excellent in God's esteem without those gracious habits and affections working in his soul. Faith works by love. His heart was on fire as well as his sacrifice. Cain rested upon his present. Perhaps thought he had obliged God. He depended upon the outward ceremony, but sought not for the inward purity. It was an offering brought to the Lord. He had the right object, but not the right manner in it. If you do well, shall you not be accepted? Genesis 4 verse 7. And in the command afterwards to Abraham, walk before me and be perfect, was a direction in all our religious acts and walkings with God. A sincere act of the mind and will, looking above and beyond all symbols, extending the soul to a pitch far above the body, and seeing the day of Christ through the veil of the ceremonies, was required by God. And though Moses, by God's order, it instituted a multitude of carnal ordinances, sacrifices, washings, oblations, and sensible things, and recommended to the people the diligent observation of those statutes by the allurements of promises and denouncing of threatenings, as if there were nothing else to be regarded, and the true workings of grace were to be buried under a heap of ceremonies, yet sometimes he points them to the inward worship, and by the command of God requires of them the circumcision of the heart, the turning to God with all their heart and all their soul, Deuteronomy 30, verse 10, Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, in which they might recollect that it was the engagement of the heart and the worship of the spirit that was most agreeable to God, and that he didn't take any pleasure in their observance of ceremonies without true piety within, and the true purity of their thoughts. Proposition 4. It is therefore as much every man's duty to worship God in spirit, 
as it is their duty to worship him. Worship is so due to him as God, is that he that denies it disowns his deity, and spiritual worship is so due that all that waves it denies his spirituality. It is a debt of justice we owe to God to worship him, and it is as much a debt of justice to worship him according to his nature. Worship is nothing else but a rendering to God the honor that is due to him, and therefore the right posture of our spirits in it is as much or more due than the material worship and the modes of his own prescribing, that is, grounded both upon his nature and upon his command. This only upon his command that is perpetually due, in which the channel in which outward worship runs may be dried up, and the river diverted another way, such a worship in which the mind thinks of God, feels a sense of God, has a spirit consecrated to God, the heart glowing with affections to God, it is also mocking God with a feather. A rational nature must worship God with that in which the glory of God sparkles in him. God is most visible in the frame of the soul. It is there his image glitters. He has given us a jewel as well as a case, and the jewel as well as the case we must return to him. The spirit is God's gift and must return to him. It must return to him in every service, morally, as well as it must return to him at last, physically. It is not fit we should serve our maker only with that which is a brute in us, and withhold from him that which constitutes us reasonable creatures. We must give him our bodies, but as a living sacrifice. If the spirit be absent from God when the body is before him, we present a dead sacrifice. It is morally dead in the duty though it be naturally alive in the posture and the action. It is not an indifferent thing whether we shall worship God or not, nor is it an indifferent thing whether we shall worship him with our spirits or not, as the excellency of man's knowledge consists in knowing things as they are in truth, so the excellency of the will and willing things as they are in goodness. As it is the excellency of man to know God as God, so it is no less his excellency as well as his duty to honor God as God. As the obligation we have to the power of God for our being binds us to a worship of him, so the obligation we have to his bounty for fashioning us according to his own image binds us to an exercise of those parts in which his image consists. God has made all things for himself, Proverbs 16:4. That is, for the evidence of his own goodness and wisdom, we are therefore to render him a glory according to the excellency of his nature, discovered in the frame of our own. It is as much our sin not to glorify God as God, as not to attempt to glorify and of him at all. It is our sin not to worship God as God, as well as to omit to testify in any respect at all to him. As the divine nature is the object of worship, so the divine perfections are to be honored in worship. We do not honor God if we honor him not as he is. We honor him not as the spirit if we think him not worthy of the ardors and ravishing admirations of our spirits. If we think the devotions of the body are sufficient for him, we contract him into the condition of our own being and not only deny him to be a spiritual nature, but dash out all those perfections which he could not be possessed of were he not a spirit.' 